Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. I'm going to ask a question that will both seem elementary and also perhaps will bring with it a diversity of answers if I were to actually poll those with us this morning. What does it mean to be a Christ follower? This is an important question for us to ask, seeing that we all endeavor to be Christ followers. And sadly, I think that there is a diversity of answers that might be given to this particular question, mostly because our culture has so formed our understanding of this and in some very unbiblical ways. For instance, it's commonly believed that as long as we once said the prayer or came forward at an altar call or grew up in the church or attend a church fairly regularly, or if we aren't that bad, then we're right with God. We then have the ability to call ourselves Christians. We're Christ followers. However, absolutely none of those things I just mentioned make someone a Christ follower. None of those things make someone a true Christian. None of those things make someone right with God, even though these are things that tend to be emphasized by many people who consider themselves to be Christians. So if that challenges your understanding of what it means to be a Christ follower, then I'm really glad that I asked the question this morning, what does it mean to be a Christ follower? And thankfully, the Bible does provide us the information that we need, and I cannot challenge you strongly enough to evaluate your life, to evaluate your beliefs, to evaluate your commitments in light of these things that we find in Scripture, which we'll look at together today. But here's the first aspect, if you will, uh, of being a Christ follower. A Christ follower believes the gospel. A Christ follower believes the gospel. So what does that mean? What is the gospel? It's a word that we throw around a lot in the church, right? It's a word we see in the scriptures. But what does it mean? It means this, that we have a problem that we caused and we can't fix, We've rebelled against God through our thoughts, through our words, through our actions, and this is sin. And it has broken our relationship with God. It's caused his wrath to fall on us. It's rendered us spiritually dead. Again, it has given us quite a problem that we caused and we can't fix. And yet God loved us so much, and he desired to extend mercy and grace to us. And so we took out his wrath. He satisfied his justice by condemning his own son, Jesus, in our place. And so Jesus took all of our sin on himself, and he died to make atonement, a covering for our sin, to bring redemption, to reconcile us to God. And this event was completed and validated by Jesus' resurrection from the dead so that we can receive God's salvation by grace and not by any works of our own. Friends, that's the gospel. And a true Christ follower believes the gospel. 
But there's a second aspect as well to a Christ follower. They also surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so as long as we surrender to the lordship of Christ and we believe the gospel, we are saved. So where do these facts come from in Scripture? Let me give you some key, key ones to remember. The first one is this, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Now just to set this up for you, Paul is writing to a church that he himself planted. He's writing five years after he planted this church. And so he's the one who first proclaimed the gospel to them. He's the one who led them to faith in Christ. And so he knows the gospel in which they had taken their stand. And now five years later, he's writing to this church at Corinth. And he's reminding them of the gospel that he preached to them five years earlier. And so here's what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So what do we see here? This is the gospel. And we are saved as long as we hold firmly to it. This is his warning. This is what he reminds them of. That they not only believed this gospel when he first preached it, but that they must hold firmly to it, otherwise they have believed in vain. That doesn't mean say a prayer, come forward at an altar call, and then walk away from the truth of it. It doesn't mean believe today, but believe something different tomorrow. It means hold firmly, persevere to the end, do not let go of this gospel that you believed. What else do we see in these verses? The facts of the gospel are present in this passage. Again, Jesus died for our sins, and he rose again from the dead. This is the gospel. But here's another important passage in reference to the gospel, in reference to what it means to be a Christ follower, in reference specifically to what it means to be saved, to use Paul's words. Here's what he writes to a different church, the church at Rome, in Romans 10, verses 9 through 11. He says this, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. So how do we know if we're saved, according to what Paul writes here? We must surrender to the Lordship of Christ, and we must believe. Now, that's not quite the words Paul used, so if you're a good Bible student, I hope that, you know, those words seemed a little different to you, but I want to take some time and explain what Paul's saying here, so allow me to elaborate. Just saying the words, Jesus is Lord, does nothing. It has no power. Even the demons, even Satan can recognize the truth of the fact that Jesus is Lord, but certainly Jesus is not their Lord. However, as a declaration of your faith, it does have power. It does mean something. It demonstrates not only what you believe, which Paul notes is also necessary, but also that you have now acted on what you believe. 
You have surrendered to Christ as Lord, and you are willing to publicly acknowledge him as your Lord. So what does a Christ follower look like? A Christ follower believes the gospel, and a Christ follower has surrendered his or her life to Christ as Lord. And here are some of the ways in which this is spelled out in the scriptures. A Christ follower, for instance, has died to self and lives for Christ. We took a look at that passage last week. A Christ follower subordinates his or her will to the will of Christ. A Christ follower seeks God's glory and not his or her own. And this is the short list of how this this is demonstrated in the life of a Christ follower if they believe the gospel and have surrendered to the lordship of Christ. And these are just some of the things, ways in which a Christ follower will exemplify that. In my best estimation, I would suggest that many, perhaps even most churches in our country, have two types of people among them. Those who are truly Christ followers in the way that we've been describing here. And they also have those who claim to be Christ followers, but do not exhibit these attributes. Maybe they don't really believe the gospel. Maybe they come to church, they enjoy what they get from it, perhaps living the Christian life to the best of their ability by biblical principles gives them a moral base that they could live with. Maybe they enjoy the community or the potlucks at church. Maybe they're part of the Christian community. They identify with Christ, saying that they are a Christ follower. But if you really push them, if they really thought through what they believed, maybe they don't really believe that Jesus' death atoned for their sins. Or maybe they have a hard time believing that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And so maybe they don't really believe the gospel. Maybe they do believe. Maybe they absolutely do believe those facts. But they're not willing to give up the lordship of their life to Jesus. As we examine our Acts passage for today, we're going to see both. We're going to see those who heard the gospel and responded by becoming true Christ followers. And we're also going to read of one who claimed to be a Christ follower, but clearly did not surrender to the lordship of Jesus. So please turn with me to Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 4. And while you're turning there, let me just uh, remind you of some things we've seen so far. If you recall from our reading thus far, the early church, under the leadership of the apostles, have had a tremendous ministry in Jerusalem. In fact, thousands have come to faith. The church was growing exponentially. But now persecution has broken out against the church. The many threats the religious leaders had made against the Christians are finally being realized. And this has caused the vast majority of Christians to flee from Jerusalem, lest they be arrested and potentially even condemned to death. And it's here that we pick up at Acts chapter 8, starting at verse 4. And our text says this this morning. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. The bad news for the Christians in this time is that persecution has broken out fiercely against them. We've seen this. 
We've seen that many were dragged away from their homes and imprisoned, and many, many more have been driven from Jerusalem as they fled from the persecution. So that's the bad news. The good news is that the gospel is now on track and gaining ground. If you remember, Jesus instructed the apostles. The gospel was to go from Jerusalem, which is where they were starting from, to all of Judea and Samaria, and then from there even to the ends of the earth. And as the church was scattered, they moved along the trajectory the gospel was intended to take. And they preached the gospel everywhere they went, as we see in our passage here today. And so we see this. uh, In our passage, we see vividly an example of this among uh, the early church in a man named Philip. Now, you might recall that we've seen Philip before. This is not the first time that we're being introduced to him. He was one of the Hellenized Jewish Christians whom the early church selected to serve in a very important way. He and six others were charged with overseeing the daily distribution of food to the widows. And he was selected by the church at large, and he was empowered for ministry by the apostles who confirmed this assignment by the laying on of hands and prayer. But then persecution broke out against the Christians in Jerusalem, and Philip was among those who had to flee to another area. So where did he flee to? He fled to Samaria. Samaria. Now, to say that Samaritans and Jews didn't like each other would be a huge understatement, so he sure picked an interesting place to settle down, or at least to uh, flee to. But remember this. In Jesus, the barriers that once existed between people are broken down, and the gospel transcends all such barriers. So what do we see of Philip's ministry in Samaria? He proclaimed the gospel. He told people about their problem, sin. He told people about God's solution, Jesus' atoning death and resurrection. And he also demonstrated the truth of the gospel, and he did so through miraculous signs. And what happened as a result? People believed. Now, a few items bear teasing out here. First, let's not miss this, that Philip is an important role model for us. Philip is an important role model for us. We should stop and pay attention. In fact, if I'm being honest, I wish that I had paid attention a little sooner. Because back in 2009, at the height of the recession, I was laid off from my pastoral position at a church in North Carolina where I served as a youth and young adult pastor. No matter what I did, I just could not find an open door back into ministry of any kind during this period. So to make ends meet, I, I went to work in retail management, have to provide for my family, so I took any job I could to pay the bills. And I'd love to tell you that I followed Philip's example of that season of my life, but that would be a lie. Instead, I griped often about being out of ministry while trying to wrap my mind around what God was doing in my life during the season. Meanwhile, opportunities for evangelism and ministry in my workplace went largely overlooked by me. To this day, I'm ashamed of that. Finally, God did open my eyes to the many wonderful opportunities for evangelism and ministry with my coworkers, with vendors, and even sometimes with customers. But friends, that realization took far more time than it should have. Again, Philip was a great role model for us. 
By contrast to me, Philip was forced to flee from his house, his community, his city, and find refuge among people who were largely hostile toward the Jews. And yet he seized the opportunity to proclaim the gospel there, and he had a tremendous ministry. Again, Philip is a great role model for us. That's the first observation. Second, Philip demonstrated the truth of the gospel, and we must as well. And so Philip cast out demons, and he healed the lame, and people saw the power of God, and they believed the gospel that he was proclaiming. Now, we could all get into debates about, you know, why we don't see the same miraculous signs displayed as readily in our midst. There are many who'd argue that God just doesn't work that way anymore, even though the scriptures don't suggest that there's going to be any kind of end to such things. However, here's where I want us to pay attention. Here's what I want us to note about our passage today, regardless of where you fall on all that. Philip demonstrated the truth of the gospel in a way that was relevant to the people he was ministering to. The lame and the demon-possessed received healing and freedom. The people who, as we'll see, have been duped by someone in their town who performed spectacles for his own glory will see the truth of the gospel stand out prominently amidst the lies that they have come to believe. And now in our context, people also have needs and very specific ways the truth of the gospel can be demonstrated to them in their particular situation. Now for some, some people have genuine intellectual obstacles, genuine questions that they need to have answered in order to consider the truth of the gospel. And friends, we're called to address these things honestly with them. Others need the wounds that they've received from Christians or from the hypocrisy that they've witnessed in the church. They need those things honestly addressed before they can consider the truth of the gospel. And friends, we have to meet them where they're at. Still others need healing from past wounds or food for their bellies and a warm place to sleep before they can consider the truth of the gospel. Because while we see the importance of eternal life and surrendering to the lordship of Jesus and the mission of God on the earth, when you're hungry or have no place to sleep tonight, those things become the more pressing needs and need to be addressed before they could hear and respond to the gospel. And so, friends, like Philip, we need to proclaim the gospel, and we need to demonstrate the truth of it in a relevant way to the people that we encounter. The third and final observation I want to make here is that many people genuinely believed. They became Christ followers in the way that we mentioned earlier, in the way that Scripture speaks about. They heard, believed, and responded to the gospel, and they surrendered their lives to the lordship of Jesus. However, in contrast to this, there was someone in their midst who also claimed to believe but did not surrender to the lordship of Christ, which we'll see shortly in our text. Continuing on, continuing on in Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 9, it says this, Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for such a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. 
Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Simon. He's certainly a man with a checkered past, but that's not the problem. After all, there's no one so sinful that Jesus' atonement was not enough to cover their sins. As our Acts study continues, in fact, we'll see someone who often claimed to be the worst of sinners, the Apostle Paul. Yet even he was not too far gone to receive God's forgiveness in Jesus. And so here's Simon, a man that either had the power to deceive by pretending to perform amazing feats or was doing some rather amazing things by some other power. And when I say some other power, I do certainly mean by the power of evil spirits. How can I say that? Well, this man was not a believer. He willingly accepted the title, the great power of God. In other words, accepting glory in God's name. He was not a proponent of the truth, and so certainly God had not empowered this man to deceive the people. So again, he either performed illusion to trick the people, or he was subject to the power of evil spirits. But Simon recognized true divine power when he saw it, just like everybody else did. As Philip performed these miraculous signs in support of the gospel, many people believed, as did Simon. He could not deny that Philip's power was superior to his, and therefore the claims he was making must be true. And so we see that Simon believed and was baptized, and he claimed to be a Christ follower. But as I asked earlier, does belief alone make someone a Christ follower? Does coming forward at an altar call make someone a Christ follower? Does even being baptized make someone a Christ follower? No, it doesn't. Did Simon also surrender to the lordship of Christ? And we're going to see the answer to this question shortly. Continuing on in chapter 8, verse 14 of Acts, it says, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So do you think that the apostles visited every time new people came to faith in Christ? No way. I'm sure they would have loved to have, but that just would not be very feasible. So why did they come now? Why did they come to Samaria? I'll give you a few reasons. First, because of the sheer number of people coming to faith in Christ through Philip's ministry. God was clearly doing something amazing here. This was a major move of God, and it got the attention of the apostles. Second, the gospel is breaking new ground. We see this often through the book of Acts, and this is one of the first big moments where that's taking place. Again, the gospel has been exclusively uh, proclaimed in Jerusalem. And the new believers have all been Jewish people. And now Samaritans are coming to faith in Jesus. And third, I believe God wanted these broken barriers witnessed by the apostles. Now, I already mentioned that the gospel transcends barriers, all the divisions that human beings impose on one another. And God is proving that he's not just the God of one ethnic group, but he's the God of the whole world. So if you're wondering, why didn't the Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit when they believed? Why did the apostles have to come and pray for this to happen? 
I believe God withheld the Holy Spirit until that time so that the apostles could witness this important breakthrough. In fact, we're going to see a similar thing happen in Acts chapter 11 when Cornelius, a Roman centurion, and his entire household come to believe, and it is when Peter prays that they receive the Holy Spirit, and Peter is amazed, and so are all the, the Christians in Jerusalem when they find out that Gentiles, too, are receiving this gift of the Holy Spirit. Continuing on in our text, uh, verse 18 we see, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray that the Lord, pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you said uh, may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Simon. If you remember, Simon was renowned for his amazing feats. He either did illusion or magic for profit and for fame. And what enticed him to Christianity was Philip's power. And while he certainly believed, it's also evident that Simon was still his own Lord. It's evident that Simon intended to continue to be his own Lord. In fact, Philip's power to heal and cast out demons was impressive, but now here come the apostles who also have the ability to pray that others might receive the source of this power, the Holy Spirit. And Simon just has to have it. Why? Because imagine how rich and famous he could be if he had the ability to empower others with the Holy Spirit. Imagine how they would seek after him. Imagine the high price that people would pay to receive such a power, and he would be the one who was able to provide it for them. An important aspect of submitting to the Lordship of Christ is repentance, of turning away from one's old self, from one's Lordship of one's own life, and turning to Jesus in obedience. John the Baptist preached repentance in preparation for Jesus' ministry. Jesus himself preached repentance during his earthly ministry. The apostles preached repentance. The New Testament preaches repentance over and over and over again. Repentance is abandoning your rebellion against God and turning toward him in obedience. And this is part and parcel with submitting to the lordship of Jesus. And sadly, this does not appear to be Simon's story. His is not a story of repentance. In fact, it seems that he saw the power of God as a vehicle to further his sin. And Peter calls him out on it. He says in Acts 8.22, he says, Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. So does Simon do so? Does he repent? Does he pray to the Lord? No. Instead, he asked Peter to pray to God for him so that judgment won't befall him. Simon can't even turn to the Lord himself to ask for forgiveness. Even after all he's seen, 
he still has not committed his life to Jesus as Lord. So friends, I have to ask you this question. I assume nothing. Are you a Christ follower? I'll tell you the truth, I don't have anyone in mind during this sermon. There's no one in this room that I think to myself, that person definitely is not a Christ follower. But again, if I'm being honest, I would not be surprised if there were several even in this room today that are not. Maybe you've spent your whole life thinking that you're good with God because you're affiliated with a church and you come every now and then. But upon reflection, you know that you've not really surrendered your life to Jesus. Perhaps you've given him a little bit of your life, maybe even more than other people, but no more than that. Maybe the opposite's true. Maybe you've considered yourself a Christian for a long time, but you have no idea if you're truly saved. If you were to die today, you're just not sure that God would receive you. Are you a Christ follower? Friends, this is not something that you wait to figure out. This is something you figure out right now. The invitation is open to you. Do you believe the gospel? Do you, do you surrender your whole life to the Lord? Is Jesus king of your life? Would you give it over to him? God is a God of forgiveness, but there's a clock on it, right? As Peter warned Simon, repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. Don't wait to do that. And friends, if you answered yes to the question, are you a Christ follower? Hey, that's great. I am so glad for you. That is a blessing to me as your pastor. However, even Christ followers must constantly war against the old self that wants to creep back onto the throne of our own hearts. In fact, the best way I've heard this put is from a pastor friend of mine who explained it this way. He said, Kevin... I know I'm supposed to let Jesus drive the car, but I keep finding myself putting a hand on the wheel, and sometimes two hands on the wheel. If I'm being honest, more times than I care to admit, I find that I've taken over the driver's seat completely and relegated Jesus to the passenger seat. And to my shame, sometimes I find him in the trunk. Friends, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our strength and all our mind. In other words, there's not a single area of our lives where we withhold from God. It all belongs to him. We surrender all 